It's something for nothing. The Rush fan cast. Steve and Jerry with you. Jerry just took a drink of water, so he can't speak right now. I can speak now. <laughs> How's it going, Jer? It's going okay. I got to come up with something better to say. I think I say it's okay all the time. So why don't you say something else? Let's try it again. Here we go. How's it going, Jer? Well, it's okay. I see. I did it again. <laughs> Can't think of anything. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast, Instagram. We are at the Rushcast. Email Jerry. Give him something else to say when I ask him how he's doing. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. At the Rushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro done masterfully by Lex, as always. And Jerry, we've got a great guest today. So why don't we get right into your email so we can get to our guest quickly? Yes. This is from David. Hey, David. In Pasco, Washington. Nice. He says, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Which is, you know, a play on long-time listener, first-time caller when people would listen to the radio. Mm -hmm. Snakes and Arrows was the first album and tour I bought as a newly minted fan since 2005, and it's resonated in more ways than one. I was a freshman in college and began collecting every Rush album I could get my hands on when Rush announced a new album with the opening riff of Far Cry as a teaser on their website. I was hooked even more. I bought the album and listened to it religiously, pun intended, and have used songs like Faithless to shape my belief on life and not needing religion to be a good person. I saw this tour in 2007 and again in 2008 at the, at the Gorge in Washington. Sounds like it's outside. I didn't look it up. I hear the Gorge is just as beautiful as Red Rocks. Oh, really? Yeah. It's supposedly an amazing place to see a show. Amazing. From what I hear. We should go. Let's do it. Pandemic over, first trip, the gorge. All right. The wind was intense, and when Spin Drift was played, the band really leaned into it, using the wind to emphasize their performance. I was also lucky enough to snag a pair of drumsticks during the intermission, and to this day, they are my most prized possession. I wonder how we did that. Well, as we talked about, Neil always sent drumsticks out to the crowd at every show. What Neil did was he would pick out signs that he liked and he would have his roadie send drumsticks out to the people who were holding the signs he liked. I should email him back and ask him what his sign said. Okay. After listening to your reviews of the podcast, I was shocked. Steve, he's shocked to not hear you reference the documentary that came on the CD. Neil explains a lot of the songs and also explains how a song like the way the wind blows was way different for drums until Nick got his ears on it. The difference of the song is night and day, considering the verses were initially toned down compared to the drive it was eventually given. Neil's exasperation at having to write new verses is refreshing since he's the greatest ever, and he admits the song benefits greatly from the changes. If you haven't seen the doc, it's worth the 40 minutes on YouTube or Facebook. Keep up the good work. Well, I'm not shocked because I didn't see the documentary. I'm not shocked because... I never bought the CD. I downloaded that. Ah, there you go. I think it was on the enhanced CD. I don't think it was on the regular CD, and I think I have the regular CD. So we'll have to check that out. Check it out on, on the YouTubes. So, Jer, about a month ago, we had Dale Heslip on, the director of Time Stand Still. He was a fantastic guest, and he told us we've got to talk to Miller. 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 Just Miller. Yep. Photographer, videographer, blogger, and editor. He served as director of photography and field director with Dale on the film Rush Time Stand Still. Miller, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And um, I have to say, Dale is one of the most wonderful human beings I've ever met. So I found your podcast completely by accident and saw his name on it. And, um, immediately got back in touch with him for the first time in ages. And he replied to the mail saying that uh, he thought we should talk. So here we are. And here we are. Look at that. We're bringing people together, Steve. Exactly. Thanks so much for joining us, Miller. Why don't you start by telling us your Rush origin story? When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? Well, it's interesting, actually, because I have listened to a few of your podcasts since listening to the one with Dale. And I think... Us three are probably all quite unusual in that Power Windows was where we kind of got on board. Oh, wow. And so I was, I'm 
guessing around 15. I wanted to be a video games programmer um, because it meant that I could just sit at home and not have to deal with the outside world because I was a bit of a geeky, socially awkward kid, as you know, I'm sure many people um, are at that age. So I had several sort of heroes in that world who were games programmers, and one of them um, I'd seen in a photo with a Rush t-shirt on. So that had piqued my interest. And then my ultimate sort of uber god in that world had a newsletter, and he mentioned that he'd just got the new Rush album, Power Windows, and it was the best thing they'd done for ages, and everybody should go out and get it. So I saw that in a shop, recognized it, and I thought, right, in service of becoming a video games programmer like these guys, I'm going to buy a Rush album. So I got Power Windows. Um, I just started getting into heavier guitar music um, after years of liking keyboardy sort of stuff. And then Power Windows, of course, has both. Um, it has both those elements, so I really, really loved it. But I'd, I noticed very quickly that the lyrics were very thoughtful, very intelligent, and you know, very different from a lot of the the sort of harder rock stuff that I was starting to get into. So I was was completely hooked from the off. Really, that was kind of my start. Um, we moved house. I was the new kid at school. I started a conversation with somebody in the playground very early in my sort of being at this new school. And he was the first person I'd ever met who'd even heard of Rush and was excited about Rush as well. And that guy is still my best friend in the whole world. And um, we ended up in a band together. We and He was the guy that sort of encouraged me to get involved with music. And the other thing as well, when you're that age, sort of defining who you are, maybe it's not so much true now as it was then, but the music that you liked was a really strong way of you know identifying who you were and certainly having a band that nobody else had heard of but that you could tell everybody how great they were um there was a sort of sense of pride around that as well so i had this special thing you know that i loved and nobody else knew about except my best friend yeah it's definitely true that the the music scene at least for my kids is a lot more fractured because you can listen mm. to anything from anywhere by anyone yeah. immediately. Absolutely. So almost no one is listening to the same thing at the same time. So mm. that kind of cachet of having a favorite rock band that no one's ever heard of is no longer a thing. Absolutely. And, you know, it used to be so regimented where if you listen to loud guitar music, you would despise all pop music or yeah. you know if you'd listen to one you couldn't listen to the other and that's all just completely blown apart now and you know it's fantastic and it's great because there's only two kinds of music now there's music you like and music you don't like right in many ways it's a terrible time to be a musician now but i think it's a incredible time to be a fan of music because <laughs> everything is available you know right yeah and when i found out about rush and you know, when I'd found out about Pink Floyd and stuff like that, I I knew the name and I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't know what they sounded like. I didn't know what records they'd made. And you have to go out and discover that. And that's the only thing I think that has maybe been lost is that when I went out and got my first Pink Floyd album, I had to save up for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, however long it was to actually get the money to buy it. Yeah. I lived in such a tiny town in the middle of nowhere that I had to get on a train for a 45 minutes to get to a, a town that actually had a record shop. I bought Pink Floyd The Wall because I had this idea that it might be something I'd be interested in. I got it home, couldn't make head nor tail of it. It sounded weird <laughs> and I didn't, wasn't sure I liked it. I couldn't get back on the train and go back to the shop. So I just kept listening to it over and over and over and over again. And slowly the blanks started filling in and eventually I could listen to the whole album from start to finish and love it. And I don't think kids have that now. Like you can have the entire discography of a band at your fingertips. You can skip through the intros and go, ah, nah, 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 not interested. And if I'd have had that then, I'd have skipped through the wall and just gone, nah, it's not for me. So, yeah, I think it is, it's an incredible time to be a fan of music. But I do think that mystique and that, that sort of scarcity. Yeah, something was great about, you know, the time that 
we all grew up in. So speaking of mystique, you say you grew up in a small town. When did you first get the experience of the mystique of Rush live? When did you see Rush live for the first time? Oh God, not for a long time. I used to listen to, there was a rock radio show in the UK called the Friday Rock Show. And when Hold Your Fire had come out, they discussed that Rush were coming to do some shows for Hold Your Fire. And I was like, oh God, I've and everybody, you know, people were phoning in going, oh, yeah, I'm going, I've got my tickets already and all the rest of it. And to get to London would have been, you know, and th- th- this is a funny thing, actually, is that in the UK, to say you, you've got to drive three or four hours to get there, that's like saying you've got to get on a ship for a month, you know. <laughs> and when I started interviewing fans for the, the rush dock, you know, I would interview people and say, oh, have you come far? And people would be like, no, God, no, no, not far. We just, we drove three and a half hours. And mm. and it, it's like most places in England, if you drive three and a half hours, you're in Scotland. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's a completely different sense of scale. But yeah, I was, I grew up in Cornwall, which is uh, the very sort of southwest bottom edge of the country. It's very, it's beautiful. I would love to live there again now that I've grown up. But as a, a kid, you feel like you're completely disconnected from the entire world. It's it's very, very rural. And, ve- you know, people who were odd and didn't fit in weren't generally having a great time down there, you know. Um, so, yeah, I felt very disconnected from the whole world. I eventually saw Rush, to get back to the question, um, when I was at university, they were doing, they came, because the thing is, as well, being in the UK, Rush didn't come to the UK on every tour. So after Hold Your Fire, which I didn't get to see, they came round on Roller Bones. So I eventually saw them on Roller Bones. They did two nights in London. I had a friend who lived not that far from Wembley Arena. So I got tickets for both nights. I went with a friend of mine on the first night. I was actually a bit underwhelmed. It was kind of strange, really. I remember I remember thinking, oh, it's good. You know, it is good, but, you know, they don't go. And I'd been going to see, at that point, I'd been going to see, I'd been to see Faith No More and Fishbone and Ministry and all these bands where it was just carnage. It was just <laughs> absolutely crazy, you know, and it was borderline terrifying to be in the middle <laughs> of the crowd, you know. So I'd been going to a lot of gigs like that. But I remember you know, really, really building up this Rush show and the first night sort of thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, it was okay. And then the second night, my friend went home and I thought, I'm going to go and, I think, did I have a ticket for the second night or can't remember, but I, I went on my own on the second night and I ended up trying to upgrade my ticket to a better seat and I got totally ripped off by a tout and I went in and that when I showed them my ticket, they were like, yeah, you might, you're up there, you know, you're just under the ceiling Uh, at the very back of the arena, you know, and here's your oxygen mask and you will get a nosebleed as you go up the fifth set of steps. Um, And I was like, God, you know, I didn't love it last night, but I can barely see the stage from here. (laughs) So I was like, maybe I'll just leave. And so I was like, well, I've got nothing to lose. So I, I kind of snuck in to the floor area and I can't, I don't know how I did it, but I just, I managed to get onto the floor and the, the opening act were Primus, and I loved Primus. So I was like, oh, I'll stay for Primus, and maybe I'll get chucked out, you know, by because I'm sitting in somebody else's seat. And I stayed on the floor, and I eventually, the, the front row was almost completely empty after Primus had finished. And I was like, I'm just going to go and sit down there mm. and see how long I can, can keep it going for. And then all the people from the front row turned up, and they were like, on your bike, get out, you know. <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough. And so I just, I, I kept moving back as people arrived. And then the house lights went out and I just bolted for the barrier and got right up the front. Um, and they didn't move me out of the way. And so I ended up on the rail and I was dead in front of Alex. And I was so close to the stage and so close to Alex that all I could hear for the whole night was his monitors. They were so unbelievably loud. Um, and I loved it. You know, that second night I could see the whites of their eyes. I could make eye contact with them or believe I was making eye contact with them. And I was like, this is the best thing ever, you know, and I I loved it. And I I had such a great time that second night. And it's, I could so easily have not even gone or 
so easily have got to my seat up in the nosebleeds and thought, ah, no, I'm going home. So that, yeah, I had two nights in a row that were almost like seeing completely different bands. So when you were younger and you uh, were listening to Rush in your small town, what kind of influence did that have on you like for the rest of your life? It seems like you listen to Rush and all of a sudden you're, this happens to all of us, right? And all of a sudden your perspective on certain things changes and maybe you're like, maybe I should uh, hitch a ride out of this place. Well, absolutely. I mean, my friend that was the drummer, he and I got in a band together and he was very, very, he was the guy that basically talked me out of being a video games programmer and told me that I should do something to do with music. And he was going to be a drummer. He was going to be a musician. That's what he was going to do. And I should do the same thing. And I was playing bass in a band with him. And obviously being a, a fan of Rush and being a bass player, it, 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 they just go together very, very well. So I'd already kind of decided that music was my ticket out of there. But around about age 17 and just after Hold Your Fire, um, there was a book have you have you seen Bill Banasiewicz's book called Visions? Oh yeah, I have that one. That's great. Yep, um, and it, it red cover and it's sort mm -hmm. of around around that era, sort of hold your fire. And that book came out, and it was absolutely like a bible to me. And it was like this is how these people have done. I mean, it's not a very well written book. It's there's lots about it that's and uh, that's probably an unkind thing to say, but sort of looking back on it. And loads of rock books are rubbish, I've come to find. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, and it, it's such a shame. But, but at the time, for my 17-year-old self, that book was the Bible. And that book was, this is how this band became what they are. You know, this is how passionate they are about what they do. This is about, you know, this is all the things, you know, that matter to them and, how, you know, what they've gone through and all of this sort of stuff. So I was definitely, and I was still sort of thinking of, being a musician at that point, but also at the very back of that book, the final page was like a team photo of everybody in the band and crew all lined up on the stage. And I remember just absolutely studying that photo over and over again for weeks and months. You know, I'd, I'd get the book out and look at it and think, imagine these people have spent their lives. And I'd read in the book that a lot of the crew had been with them, you know, for the whole journey and, it was like a family and all the rest of it. And I would look at this picture and think, imagine, you know, the stories these people have got, you know, the lives they've led. But, you know, being in a tiny town where, you you know, you have to get on a train to go to a record shop, you know, it just seemed like, yeah, those people have an incredible life, but those people came down to the earth on a spaceship, you know. <laughs> so I, I, I did, when I eventually left my small town and went to university, I thought, maybe I'll be a sound engineer or something like that. So I went to do a degree that I thought would teach me to be a sound engineer. And it, it everything was kind of in the service of becoming a person who worked in music, like those people in that team photo in that Rush book. So let's fast forward, Miller. How did you get your break working with Rush? Well, um, I did end up being a person who went on tour and I did end up being a sound engineer. Um, and I worked for, uh, lots of tiny bands that you haven't heard of. Um, and, um, I did a, a bunch of stuff with a, a Pink Floyd tribute band, which was right up my street was the first thing I ever did. Um, and I moved on to, to, to lots and lots of other bands and ended up doing pro tools and keyboards tech jobs for one band, which, became huge and I did a lot of work with them and my rush break came from somebody that I knew through that band and I had been working for that band doing Pro Tools sort of sound engineering stuff and keyboards but I also made web content for them and filmed and photographed and my friend who looked after that band's website also looked after Rush's website and I was between tours I wasn't working and I'd seen Dave Grohl do the inductance speech for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I hadn't listened to Rush for years. Um, and I just kind of drifted away from, I had been very passionate about them and then not really paid them much attention for years. And then I saw that Dave Grohl speech and all of a sudden my Rush fandom was like, it's back. 
yes, you know, yeah, he's yeah, he's right, you know. Okay. And I was suddenly so proud of this band that I'd almost forgotten about, you know. So having seen that Dave Grohl speech, my rush interest picked up again, and then I saw that they were coming to the UK. So I contacted my friend and I said, look, because usually, you, you know, you phone people for tickets and it's just annoying. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll offer to do some work for them. They'll say no, and then I'll get free tickets. So <laughs> I said, oh, you know, I, I noticed they're in London, you know, in a, a few weeks. So, you know, if they need any photos or any video or anything, then um, let me know. And I thought I'll get a very polite no, and then I'll say, oh, well, you know, any chance of any tickets. But within 20 minutes, I got a phone call from a lady called Megan Simsick, um, whose surname I may have just mispronounced. And Meg worked at the management office. And obviously, I have to give an enormous shout to Meg at this point, not just for the fact that without her, I wouldn't have had any involvement with Rush whatsoever, um, let alone this incredible experience that I've had, but also the fact that she's probably, to most Rush fans, one of these completely invisible people who has done an enormous amount for the band. The Rolling Stone cover and the Colbert Report appearance and all of these things where Rush's association with the media has completely changed in their latter years. That was something that Meg was hugely instrumental in. And like I say, most people will have no idea she even exists. So thank you, Meg, for getting me on board and also big ups for everything that you've done to bring Rush to a bunch of people who may not have ever given them a second look after rejecting them when they were quote-unquote uncool in the 70s and 80s. So when I spoke to Meg on the phone, she immediately started talking at about 100 miles an hour, which is what she does. And she was like, right, we, you know, we need somebody to shoot some photos and some video and yeah, no, it'd be great. And we've seen the stuff you do for this other band and oh God, you know, it'll be amazing. And I, it was like a steamroller. And I was like, wow, I, maybe I'm going to go and do some work for Rush then. Wow. <laughs> and so we emailed backwards and forwards and we kind of hashed it out. And she explained to me that they had a guy called Andrew McNaughton, who, whose name was familiar to me from all of the album covers. And she said um, he had taken care of all of the filming and photographic stuff for the band for years. And they were really, really close with him. But sadly, he'd passed away and they didn't have anybody to fill that role. And the, the band historically didn't like outsiders and and she was like, but, you know, you've done all this touring. You kind of know what the setup is. And, you know, maybe we can make something work out. So we did a lot of backwards and forwards. We kind of negotiated a fee and and kind of got it together. And then um, it suddenly dawned on me that we'd been negotiating this fee and agreed this fee. And we'd never actually put a currency on it. And I was like, ah. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm thinking in UK pounds. Like, she might be thinking in US dollars. And then I was like, oh. God, they're in Canada. Like, and I looked up the exchange rate and I was like, oh God, if it's in Canadian dollars, then that's like that's a big difference to what I've just said I'm happy with. And so I, I emailed and I was like, by the way, just to clarify, I'm talking about British pounds. And she was like, ah, I'm talking about Canadian dollars. And oh, and like I say, huge difference. And I was like, well, do you think you can square it? And she said, well, you're going to have to talk to Peggy. And Peggy was built up to me. Peggy is the most wonderful, hilarious human being. And she's, um, she's in the documentary, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and she's hilarious and she's wonderful. But both Meg and my friend Brian, who I need to give a huge shout out to, because without Brian, I would never have got the Rush gig or be sitting here telling this story to you. But both Brian and Meg were like, she is a terrier when it comes to money. She is an absolute hoot to hang out with. She's brilliant, um, but she is brutal on negotiations. So you're going to have your work cut out trying to negotiate with her. And negotiating money is about equivalent to root canal surgery for me. I, I hate it. I absolutely hate discussing money and sort of talking money. And I was like, oh, God. So they said, right, we're going to have to, um, we're going to sort out this meeting. Peggy's going to be in London with Meg. Before the tour starts, they're going to a wedding. You can go and so I I spent days sort of preparing my case like I was going to court and 
you know, steeling myself for this fight with this absolutely formidable woman. And I met them in this hotel and I arrived first, um, was sitting in the hotel bar, was waiting for them to arrive. They had been to this wedding. They sort of, they were slightly merry. They made their way across the bar. We'd never even seen each other. We hadn't Skyped. We hadn't done anything. So I was kind of like, are you? And so it was like sort of nervous hellos and getting to know each other. And I'm getting ready for this big negotiation. And then all of a sudden, Josh Homme comes out of a back room. He's 33 sheets to the wind. He's got his arms around both of them. And he's like, right, you're getting drunk with me. And, you know, oh, God, it's so great to see you. And so we all got pulled into this back room of this hotel bar. Um, Josh Homme is holding court. Um, he is a spectacularly wonderful human being. He was like every sort of person from the hotel or bar staff. He knew everybody by name. He insisted each of them bunk off work and have a drink with him. And <laughs> he was just, he was lovely, like wonderful, wonderful, warm human being. And he, he clocked pretty quickly that I didn't know anybody in the room. And so he sat me down next to him. He's like chatting away and he's like, so what are you, you know, why are you here? What's, what's going on? And I explained, and he's like slurring across the table at, at Meg and Peggy. And he's like, this guy's going to make the best film you've ever seen in your life. Oh, he's this, he's, oh, it's great. Look at him. Oh, it's, and, um, and it's starting to get towards eight o'clock and I know they've got to go at eight o'clock cause they've got like this dinner meeting and I'm like, oh, maybe I've blown this, you know, and maybe this isn't going to happen because they just think I've sat and got drunk with Josh Homme and, and I'm not interested. <laughs> and so they stand up to leave and uh, Peggy just turns around, looks over her shoulder and she goes, ah, oh, the money's fine. Just come to Manchester on Friday. She doesn't sound anything like that, by the way, but that's, <laughs> um, so I'm like, brilliant. That's the, like the best business meeting I've ever, ever had. So that was how it started basically and that that it was it, i sent the email to my friend brian while standing in a queue at a supermarket and i was like eh, you know i'll just send this off and maybe i'll get some tickets and that sort of idle moment while waiting in a supermarket queue sort of led to all of that so you know like you said rush um is kind of like a a, a tight-knit family so how did you find your way into the family it was tricky and it, it was, you know, I was, I was warned, you know, don't upset the drummer. Don't, <laughs> don't um, and don't upset anyone. Just go in gently and they may be reticent with strangers because there's been people working for that band for 30 years. So they may not accept a stranger. So just go in gently and, you know, see what you can do. And I, I, I went up to Manchester and, um, I drove up there with all my camera gear in the boot of the car and I was like sitting in the car thinking, God, this could be really tricky. And I was like, what if I get there? And after spending all those years adoring them, what if I don't like them? And then I was like, oh my God, what if they don't like me? You know, it, it could be like a really nice, like don't meet your heroes. Right. You know, so I was like, ah, oh, you know, and I went in on the first day and I introduced myself to all the crew in the afternoon. The crew, I mean, the, their crew are just every single one. I could sit here and list people who were lovely to me and why. And I would literally have to go through every single person on the tour because everybody without fail was, was warm and welcoming and just really, really wonderful. And many of them I'm still in regular contact with. So that kind of eased things in the afternoon. And then the band around, arrived for sound check and like my initial reaction seeing them walk up onto the stage was like, just find somewhere and run and hide. And then I won't upset anybody. <laughs> and I just, I went completely in the other direction and I just walked up onto stage with my camera and went to each member of the band. And I, I went up to Neil first and I just said, I don't know if you know who I am. I don't know if anybody's explained who I am, why I'm here, what's going on. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Meg has sent us an email. And I said, look, Nobody likes having a camera pointed at them. And I'm just going to do what I do. If it's ever annoying or it's, you know, making you uncomfortable, just let me know. Just just say to me, not now, Miller, or say something ruder. You know, I've had this face for 40 years. I'm really hard to offend. Um, <laughs> and, and he laughed. Um, and he subsequently, a long time later, said to me, you know, he'd been doing that 
job for 40 years and nobody had ever done that before. Nobody had ever just turned up and said, look, if it's annoying, just tell me to sling me hook and go away, you know. Um, and I think that comes from the fact that I'd been touring for 20 years at that point. And I had always observed when people come in with cameras, like most people that film for a living, like if you're like, they, they don't just do music. They also are directors of photography for really, really high dollar car commercials or fashion shoots and things like that. And in that situation, the person holding the camera is the most important thing in the room, you know, because there's all this money being spent. And the only important thing is that that person gets what they need. So it is correct and professional for that person to demand to get what they want because otherwise they're wasting people's money. But in a music environment, there's two things that are important. One is the artist's comfort and two is the audience's experience. And after that, all of the other concerns are a very, very long way down the list. You know, so I always thought you can't behave like that, particularly if you come into an environment where people aren't particularly keen. So I, I did that and I, I started off like that just by saying to them, eh, you know, I'm going to do what I do. Tell me to go away if you, if you like. And, and that kind of worked. But I, I was very, probably almost too cautious on that, that first tour. And that was Clockwork Angels. It's a great tour to do as well. It's a great tour as a fan to be reintroduced to the band because my God, what a record, you know, and what, yeah. what, what a tour, you know, cause the string section were with them and all the material they were doing was fantastic, you know? So it was a, an incredible tour to, to go and see. And they were also doing loads of stuff from power windows on that tour. So yeah. it was a great, great tour to, to get back on. So, but I did what, what you do as a, a sort of content person when, you've been told that the band would like to be left alone. So yeah. I interviewed the crew. I interviewed the audience. You know, I did a lot of sort of arty shots of the equipment and stuff like that. And I spent quite a long time standing off a little bit, you know, and then I had this one night where I had noticed, and I can't remember the song now, but there was one song where they would all gather, you know, well, all this, three of them, <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, Getty and Alex would gather at the drum riser and they would have like this little conflab conversation between the three of them and the, the music would stop. They'd kind of share a little joke and then they'd finish the song. And I was like, that's, that's a real moment. And it, it's an absolute money shot. If you're shooting video, if you can look over the drummer's shoulder and get the other members of the band looking at him, mm -hmm. like any shot that has the entire band in is money shot and any shot that has the entire band the entire audience and a sense of how big the the room is you know it's your quids in so i was like i've got to get that and i i've sort of plucked up the courage to crawl around the stage uh one night and i'm stood right next to neil when that moment comes um i mean i'm not right next to him i'm next because you can't get near him because he's got this ridiculous drum kit um, but i'm next to his ridiculous drum kit um and by the way i listened to your brian hyatt interview and he talked about hearing those drums acoustically and as i got more confident and spent more time more time on the stage i would hear the drums night after night after night and i would stand within a few feet of them and they sounded unbelievable and i don't think people realize what an artist Lorne Wheaton is um, Neil's drum tech yeah. because the, he would spend all day getting the drums to sound the way they should. Um, and he had on the R40 tour, there was a drum kit in Neil's dressing room. There was a drum kit for the first half of the show. And there was a drum kit for the second half of the show. And every single kit sounded just immaculate. So anyway, a bit of a tangent there, but I'm standing next to Neil's drum kit. Uh, it comes the moment Alex comes over. I'm in the shadows, so he can't see me. He's got his back to the audience. He pulls a face to Neil like he's exhausted and he just, he's absolutely can't bear to go on. He suddenly clocks me, realizes I'm there and sort of starts joking around and like pretending he's Mr. Showbiz. And, and then Getty joins in and the three of them 
are sharing a joke, but they're sharing a joke with me. And I'm like, I'm in the middle. And all of a sudden I started to feel like, oh, maybe, you know, I'm part of the gang now. I mean, I'm, mm. you know, I'm clearly massively outside, a totally new boy, but I felt less like I shouldn't be there. I felt accepted, you know? So that was like, ah, oh, that's a, and I, I also knew it was a great shot. That whole tour and that whole project was really for me about just becoming more comfortable with them. Um, and it, you know, we got, but we, we got to the end of it and I kind of thought, well, that's probably going to be it, you know, and I've done that and it's a great story and it, you know, childhood dream fulfilled all the rest of it. Thank you very much. And, you know, on to the next thing. But then, yeah, I got called back and I, I totally wasn't expecting it. Um, but it, I, I was trying to think earlier today how it all came about. It would have just been emails but yeah, then I got told that R40 was happening and, you know, they wanted to document the tour and that I would be there for the whole thing um, rather than just, you know, a few shows at the end, which is what I did on Clockwork Angels. Yeah. And it, it was like, wow, I'm, I'm back in. Wow. So I just want to let our listeners know that the, uh, the Clockwork Angels film that you did is on the Clockwork Angels tour DVD. It's called Can't Stop Thinking Big. It's fantastic. That's very, very, very kind of you. The shots you get of Neil from behind and the whole crowd are just, just amazing. And like you said, money shot. I mean, that's it. it it's it's to as soon as you can see. I mean, if you can get the artist and the audience in together, it's it. Yeah, it's it's a total winner. But yeah, I mean, it it, it was enormous fun to do. It was a, a huge privilege to be allowed to do it. Yeah, and it it's. I haven't watched it for years. I did watch it again in preparation for this interview just to try and jog some memories. Um, and it, it, I am proud of it. And, it, you know, it was a, a great thing to be allowed to do. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a really, really wonderful experience. So the next step was, as you said, R40. And you worked on both the Time Stand Still documentary and the R40 tour video? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, the, the tour video, the R40 Live, was shot over two nights in Toronto. So for those two nights, I was running around shooting the audience. And by that point in the tour, because it was quite a long way into the tour, by that point in the tour, I'd met a lot of the audience <laughs> because I was interviewing the audience for the documentary and I would interview as many people as I could at every show. And I started to realize that a lot of them were coming to multiple gigs. Some of them were coming to every gig. So by that show, you know, or the two Toronto shows, I would walk around the arena and just constantly be seeing people that I recognized or, you know, people that I was starting to sort of see as friends. So, yeah, for that night, for the, the, the live DVD, I was shooting audience footage. Um, but for the rest of the tour, I was there every day and would like I say, I would interview people from the audience. I would interview people from the crew. You know, I would just collect as much stuff as I could and also shoot stuff because their schedule was, they never did two shows in a row. There was a day off after every show. So I would also have these sort of crazy road trips in between shows. So I was there every day. And it, it was great that that R40 tour for me it was a completely different experience going in because I didn't feel, you know, like I shouldn't be there or like I had to be really careful. I, I felt already accepted. So going in and feeling comfortable was brilliant. You know, it was, it was really, really lovely. We did, um, or they did production rehearsals for, I think, two weeks in the arena that they did the first show in. And so they rehearsed all the elements of the show because there was a lot of moving parts on stage and, you know, a lot going on. So they, they rehearsed for about two weeks and I turned up at that point and started filming. And I remember, I mean, one of the, the most sort of being a fan. And the, the thing is that the management had said to me at the beginning, don't, especially with Neil, don't tell him that you love the band and you think he's an incredible drummer <laughs> and all you're like... <laughs> It it will just turn him off. So I was, and I I kind of knew that already, and I kind of knew for you know from other things that I'd done that it's 
it's it just sets up a really weird relationship if if you are bowing down before them and it it's just too difficult and the other thing is for an artist a mega fan with a camera and an access all areas pass is like the <laughs> worst nightmare do you know what yeah. i mean so it, it's like i turned up and I didn't let on to anybody that I'd even heard of the band before. Didn't really, you know. <laughs> and so, and what's this band called? Brush. Yeah, I don't know yeah, who they are. yeah. So, what? Well, they're American or something? Like, and, <laughs> I mean, it, it it wasn't quite like that, but it was, you know, it kind of was. And it was just easier that way. And mm. we were at the at the production rehearsals in Tulsa because I was working with Dale and Alan very very closely because it was their project, the the R forty and the um the time stand still documentary so i was i was working really closely with them and they did a run through that they'd filmed on one of the rehearsal nights and they all went back into the dressing room and i kind of tagged along and it's just the band and me and dale and alan um and they're, they're kind of discussing what worked and what didn't work and that was like another sort of milestone moment for me because i was sitting there and I had a T-shirt on with a huge, enormous face of this guy called Sid James, who was a British comedian from the 60s. Um, and Neil recognised who it was. And loads of people used to point at it and go, ah, George Carlin. And I was like, no, it's, <laughs> it's not George Carlin. But he he got it straight away. He knew who it was and, and did a brilliant impersonation of the guy on my shirt. And I was like, my God, you know, you, not only do you know who he is, but you can do a really good impression of him. And we just ended up sitting in the dressing room discussing our favorite comedians and, you know, talk. And, you know, they were being nice to me. They were they were definitely going out of their way to make me feel welcome, which was really, really lovely. And then they went on and they started talking about the, um, you know, what had worked in the rehearsal and what hadn't. And um, I can't remember who it was that said, but they said, Ged, you can't introduce Jacob's Ladder and say it's never been played live before because I'm sure we have we we must have done and I'm mm -hmm. sitting there thinking it's on exit stage left like, it's like, <laughs> of course you've played it live before and I'm like no just keep stum keep you and so I'm biting my lip and it's eventually somebody googles it and they're like no you've played it 700 <laughs> times and he's like um so that was that, like that was a great great evening and then slowly the crew started coming in and it just started becoming like this little sort of soiree. And I, I put my camera on the table as if, you know, I was just putting it down and, but I switched it on and put it into record. And I thought if I get something, it will be worth it. And, um, Neil clocks it straight away. He knows exactly what's going on and he looks at me and then looks straight down the lens of the camera. And he's like, Miller, turn the camera off or I will kill you right now. And I was like, oh God, that's that's gotta be the closing shot of the film. That's gotta and it was you know, it wasn't done in a threatening way, it was done in a really good natured but you know, because we'd had this lovely time. But he you know, he was making it clear the the line is here, you know. And so so for ages I was lobbying with Dale and Alan going, that's gotta be the last shot of the film. Or it's you know, when the credits have rolled and you know, everyone right. thinks it's over, yeah. that'll just be the little bit that pops up at the end. But it never made it in, actually. I've still got that footage somewhere. Oh wow. So that tour started, I felt much more involved and I felt, you know, much more comfortable, but I still withheld my my fandom throughout. Well, you know, you've had experiences that most oh god, most almost all Rush fans haven't had with the band. So how, when it comes to their music, how does their personalities play into how you listen to the music now? Do you appreciate it in different ways? Can you see different aspects of their personality come through certain songs? I, I don't know if it affects the way I listen to the music, but I, I definitely like getting to know them. Like I'd read in that book what warm and wonderful and sort of a family vibe and all this kind of stuff and, you know, what lovely people they are. And I'd seen other people talk about what lovely people they were and all the rest of it. And doing the tour, what you very often find um, or what I've very often seen is that people are very lovely and they are very nice and they know how to be a lovely person. But when things get very, very high pressure or when the mask slips, then they can actually be, you know, because all of us, you know, you can get cut up in traffic. I can yeah. be... Uh, you know, nasty and 
shouty and deeply unpleasant, you know, and then go back to my mask, you know. Yeah, they, they could be human. Exactly. So I kept waiting for that to happen. And, you know, I wasn't with them 24-7 and I was only, you know, I was on half a tour and one tour. But I never saw anything other than just the most wonderful, wonderful people. And they were incredibly respectful to with everybody that they dealt with. They were really, really kind, really patient. And I was like, this actually is who they are, you know, and Alex is credited with being the funniest man alive. And I have no dispute with that whatsoever. <laughs> he is just hilarious and absolutely wonderful. And Neil, more than anything, I was expecting Neil to be very standoffish, you know, very prickly and difficult. And he was absolutely wonderful. And that is the thing that I, I take away from the tour is thinking, I kind of always hoped that they were nice guys, but, they really, really are wonderful, wonderful, really, really lovely, lovely people. I um on one of the days off between shows that I was talking about, um, one of the guys, I don't know if you would even call it the lighting crew, um, but there's a guy called Sebastian, um, who is an absolute genius and a lovely, lovely man. And he was the guy that sort of ran all the motors that um brought all the the bits of lighting and the video screens up and down and flew them around the stage. And he also flew drones um, and he had talked for ages with Neil about going out into the desert and chasing the motorbikes with his drone. So they finally came up with a day between two shows where they could go out to the desert and do that. And um, I tagged along because I was like, you know, it'll be some good footage and blah, blah, blah. And I was kind of interested in the drone as well because at the time I didn't own one. And I was like, I see what all this is about with these drones. And so I shot a load of stuff then and I kind of made this and it, it never ended up. I don't think it's gone anywhere, actually. I don't think it's on any DVDs or anything like that. But I made this little two minute film of them in the desert. And I, it was like this incredible sort of desert setting and all this heat haze. And I'm crouched down in the middle of the sort of dirt track and the two motorbikes. Um, he was riding with Michael, his security guy at the time. And, you know, they, they come up this dirt track and ride their bikes one either side of me. And I made this little cinematic sequence and sent it to Michael, uh, Neil's security. And it was the same thing as the, the European thing. Sort of Neil saw it, absolutely loved it. And then I, I was telling him about my friend who is still my best friend that, you know, I'd met at school and knew who, you know, he was. Um and although I didn't say that to him, um, but I was telling him about my friend who was a drummer and I told him an embarrassing story about him that I can't even repeat because, <laughs> it, it, but it's just the most ridiculous story. Um, and I, I told him this story and he was pissing himself laughing and um, he, he gave me some drumsticks to give to my friend and he wrote this lovely letter to him to encourage him to keep playing drums. And, and he was just, you know, after that film that he, he really loved of them in the desert. He, you know, he just became super, super friendly, you know, and seeing that side of them. Yeah. Was, was as a fan, what, what an absolute treat and what, you know, what an absolute privilege to get that. And that's, it doesn't affect my listening to the music, but it does affect my being. I mean, the, the entire experience, the, the entire experience of making that documentary to meet the fans and to meet people who were super, super passionate about the band reminded me of what it was like for me. And then seeing the band be brilliant night after night after night, them doing Clockwork Angels and, and then doing all of that retrospective stuff on R40 where every song was a career highlight. It totally brought my fandom back up to beyond where it had been when I was a kid, you know, I, I suddenly had this enormous respect for them because they were nicer and more wonderful as human beings than I, I thought they could be. And they were, they were an incredible live band. You know, they were really, really good. Definitely better than when I saw them at Wembley arena and I almost didn't go the second night. So mm. it, I, I guess it has affected the way I listen to the music because it does, 
you know, I I am absolutely more of a Rush fan now than I ever was. And as a fan, Miller, uh, another incredible experience for you must have been being at that final show. Can you tell us what that experience was like being at the, the last show? It was absolutely insane. It, it really, really was insane. And we, we kind of, Dale and Alan and I and some of the other people from their office, we would have a production meeting once a week and we would sort of plan what was coming up. And we, it sort of dawned on us quite a long way out. That night is going to be just, that's going to be the absolute sort of emotional climax of the whole piece, but it's also going to be possibly the emotional climax of the entire career of the band, you know? So we kind of, it, it was pregnant with emotion going into it. We, we all knew it was going to be insane, but it, it really was, you know, people in the crew through the day setting the first, you know, that show up, it was, some people were kind of joking. Some people were kind of sad, but some people were clearly really upset, you know, and mm. really having a, a tough time dealing with it because it had been their life, you know, and it was it's enormously emotional. And then, you know, filming the front row through the show and people openly weeping, you know, and it, it, it sounds ridiculous. And it's the sort of thing where if you have never experienced that level of passion for a band or a sports team or, or anything, if you haven't experienced it and you talk about grown men weeping about a rock band splitting up, you know, or announcing that they're never going to tour again, it's, it's easy to scoff at. But if you have experienced it and you have been part of it, it's deeply, deeply emotional. And it's, you know, it's, it's hugely, and we got, we deliberately got extra camera people in and, you know, there was people just shooting the crowd. And there was also the question of how do the band feel, you know, and how, how, how is it going to be for them, you know? And then and the, the, the one thing about that final show that I, is my, total abiding memory of it is I was using and it boring technical stuff. So I, I won't even explain it. I was using the, the camera I was using had a fault and if the battery died while you were shooting, it didn't finish writing the file and whatever you had shot since pressing record would be lost. And I had lost some really, really important footage that way by letting the battery die. And I was like, uh, you know, I need to be really, really cautious of this. And so we get to the end of the show. We get to the end of that final night and the end of the band's career. And I'm like, right, magic shot next to the drum riser, looking out behind Neil, you know, the other two will wave, he'll mm -hmm. bow, he'll run off stage, he'll disappear. You know, I'll get the big shot with the whole three band members in, the audience, you know, that will, that's a really safe shot to get and it will be good no matter what happens. So I'm stood there. I'm looking through the camera. I'm stood kind of over Neil's shoulder, looking out over the crowd, and I'm like, yeah, it's great. And then I notice that the battery's about to die. Oh, I'm like, oh, oh God. Uh, and I'm like, right, I've got to, as soon as he's finished waving and he's off, I've got to hit the button, bank it. And, and then he runs out from the drum kit, and they've been asking him, and Dale explained this brilliantly. You know, he, he does the bow with the three of them, which they never thought they would ever see. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't switch it off now. I can't. And there's times when you are making a film where you look through the viewfinder and you're like, this is in the film. What is happening now is in the film. Don't shake the camera. Don't spoil this. Just get it. Just get this shot. So I'm, I'm looking through it thinking this is in the film. This is definitely in the film. And I'm watching the, the little light flashing, screaming at me, saying the battery's about to go. The battery's about to go. I'm about to die. I'm about to die. I'm about to die. And I'm thinking just let Neil walk off stage, hit the button, bank it. He he walks off. Geddy walks up to the mic to say something. And I'm like, oh, I, I should get this. I should get this. And and the whole time I'm thinking, if I don't get it in time, if I don't hit the button, it's gone. And this is never coming back. And I'd had this experience before where I'd lost footage. And there was a guy um, called Kevin Reaper who was a data forensics expert who worked on the tour as a security guy. And he had tried to help me get footage back 
and he had sat in his hotel room till all hours of the morning sort of and his job as a data forensics expert was you know going into court cases and pulling footage out of hard drives that had been erased a hundred times and had magnets you know and all the rest of it he couldn't do it he couldn't get it back so i knew if i lost this footage it was gone so getty says thank you know says his thing to the audience and i'm like i'll just watch him walk off stage because it's an incomplete shot now I'll watch him walk up. And then I see that Alex is waiting for him. And I'm like, oh God, I've got to get up. And I'm like, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. And I follow them down the corridor and they put their arms around each other. And I'm like, this is just, it's just hit after hit after hit. And I've got to hit the button. Um, and then we finally get to the dressing room door and the, the dressing room door closes. There's a screen in the dressing room that shows what's on the, the tour video screen. And it just happens to be Neil waving and then, the two of them walk arm in arm into the dressing room and the door slams and I'm like, hit it, hit it, hit it. Hit it. And, and I, I got it. I got that. So that's, that's my, I mean, it, it's certainly not the most important thing that happened that night, but that's my abiding memory was thinking <laughs> I'm, I'm going to lose the best shot I've got on the entire tour. You know, I'm going to lose it and I'm going to have to explain to Dale, Oh, I got this amazing shot, but it's dead and it's, it's not there. Uh, you know, I knew the ending of that story that, you got the shot and i was like and i'm thinking here oh my god i hope that battery doesn't die oh boy i hope it doesn't die oh god it was just and and like i say i had lost footage that way and i i lost footage that i had this ridiculous day where um i'd gone to interview ed stenger who i know that you've spoken to from russiasband.com I um, I discovered that there are two Clevelands in America um, and they are equidistant from a place that I picked a hire car up from. And I drove to the wrong Cleveland because I just wrote <laughs> Cleveland into the sat-nav. I ended up driving three hours, four hours in the wrong direction. Where's the other Cleveland? Um, it's, it's three hours east of wherever I picked Cleveland that is? hire car. <laughs> no, it's, it's six or seven hours east of where the real Cleveland is. And I know that. So I'd had this day where I, I, I drove there. I drove another three and a half hours back. So I got back to where I'd started and it took me six or seven hours. I'm phoning Ed up going, look, I'm, I'm coming to interview you. I'm, I will, I will get there. And he's like, look, we're going on vacation and we've got to get to the airport. So if you can't get here, I'm going to have to go. And so I'm like racing to get to his house. I do the interview. His family is standing in the hallway of his house with their suitcases packed, like all looking at their watch going, if we miss our vacation because of this idiot who can't find Cleveland on a map. Um, so I, I, I did that. And then they, I, I wave them all off. You know, they, they're all going off on holiday. I'm back in the car and I'm like, oh God, now I've got to get to Chicago. So I then got to drive like another five, six hours or however long it was from Cleveland to Chicago. Um, and it, it's late in the evening by then. I'm driving through the night. I get my first ever American speeding ticket. I'm pulled over by two police officers who are not interested in Rush whatsoever. They're not <laughs> impressed by a British accent, you know, and the bumbling Englishman thing. That doesn't work. I'm, I'm driving into Chicago at you know, God knows what hour of the morning I have to get the hire car back before it incurs another day's rental. And it's a double day's rental because mm. I've driven it one way, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking all I have to do is drop the hire car off. I can get on the bus and I can get some sleep. I'm, I'm driving into Chicago. I'm screaming. I've got all the windows open, like blowing cold air in my face. I'm like reading people's license plates to try and keep myself <laughs> awake. I get the hire car back. The, the day just turns into, it's a gig day. So it just, I, I don't get chance to catch up on sleep. And that's the day when I found out that the footage gets lost was because I was about to go to sleep. And then Meg reminded me, I'd, I'd agreed to shoot Geddy talking about his base collection in the afternoon. So I, I had to race, set all my cameras up and lights and mic him up and all this sort of stuff. And I'm following him round talking about his base collection. And after about 20 minutes, I look at the camera and realize it's died. The battery's died. And I'm like, oh my God, we've done 20 minutes on one shot. And it's like, it's gone. And so I have to sort of go into the dressing room later and say to Getty, that was brilliant. 
I reckon if we do it one more time. <laughs> so I, I have to explain to him. And he's, he's lovely. He's wonderful. He's gracious. He's forgiving. He's, he's clearly not impressed, though. You know, it's, it's you know. <laughs> so, so I've had that experience, you know. And, and so I knew that that bit of, you know, that bit of gear was going to let me down if I didn't, didn't catch it at the very end. I thought you were going to say that as you were driving, you were going to run out of gas. <laughs> it, it, it's a very similar experience, but I mean, but I could have easily run out of gas and not even noticed. I was so, and that, and that night as well, I thought I'll get the Getty interview done and then, and then I'll go and get some sleep. And I, I, I was in such a panic over losing this footage that it just ate the rest of my afternoon and sort mm. of into the evening. And then it was gig time, and I was like, "Well, I can't sleep through the gig because yeah. you know that's what I'm there to do is, right. is you know shoot the band and the audience. And if something amazing happens during the gig, and everyone's like, did you get it? Did you get it?' And I'm like, "I was asleep. I was I was on the bus having a kip, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, right, I'll just I'll just get through the gig, right. I'll just get through the gig, and then I can have some sleep. And I get halfway through the second set, and I get texts from. Meg and she's like, "Oh, Billy Corgan's in the audience. Um, uh, he he was on the guest list. It's his town. Um, do you want to interview him? Yes, of course I want to. <laughs> you know. And so, like, I'm 48 hours into sleep deprivation at this point. I'm virtually hallucinating, and I'm like, I have to run to the dressing room or a empty dressing room, set up all the lights, cameras, all the rest of it. And I've already lost all this footage of Getty from earlier in the day, and I, I end up sitting there." completely sleep deprived and just out of my mind tired and billy corgan's like a huge sort of childhood hero of mine and the two of us are just sitting there geeking out about how great rush are mm. and i'm like i wonder if this is actually a hallucination <laughs> I, wonder if, like, <laughs> I wonder if this is actually happening and it, and so that 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 finished and but it, it's important to say actually and it, it all of this said um ed didn't make it into the film and Billy didn't make it into the film. Mm. Um, and those are just two people from that 48 hour period. But there are so many people that I talked to and I interviewed and that shared incredible stories and that so many people didn't make it into the film. And I, if any of them are listening and any of them, you know, are listening and are thinking, well, you know, you interviewed us, but we didn't get, you know, Every documentary, there there is many, many, many times more stuff shot than ever makes it in, and I I I heard just so many incredible stories. We could make an entire other film, and it would be a very long film of you know of all of the the stuff that that didn't get in, and all the people, and all of their stories. So if you didn't get in, um, it's not because you weren't amazing. It is because that's how films are made, unfortunately. That was a great story, Miller, but we can't fit that into the podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, we'll definitely Fair leave play. that in. <laughs> Actually, no, what's going to happen is the battery will run out on the Zoom recording. <laughs> we have three seconds left on this the Zoom whole conversation will be gone. Uh, before we wrap up, Miller, I, I saw one of your Instagram posts, uh, something Neil said that stuck with you. What's the most awesome thing I can do today? Yes, indeed. Do you ask yourself that question every day now? I don't ask it every day, um, but it does come to me very, very regularly. And it is, you know, he was, he, he, his writing and the, the way that he very thoughtfully looked at life did influence me as a young man. and having met him and having been absolutely knocked out by how awesome a human he was, it, it affects me as a much older man. Um, so I do think that regularly. Yes. Well, it was awesome talking to you today, Miller. Thanks so much for joining us. Your stories were fantastic. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. It was great. I really enjoyed it. And I am a, a big, big fan of the podcast. I think what you do for rush fans is it's fantastic. It's a great, thing for us all to have so thank you oh thank you so jared dale heslip was absolutely correct that we had to talk to miller <laughs> yeah right exactly what a great guest what a great guest and what a nice guy yeah i was i was gonna say it's 
immediately friendly. Oh, absolutely. And considering a little, uh, you know, inside baseball about the show, about a half an hour's worth of me trying to figure out how to hook my microphone up or something. There was some <laughs> kind of setting that, that went wrong. And Miller was like, yeah, whatever. And we had a great time talking just for that half hour. You can follow Miller at Miller World on Twitter and on Instagram also at Miller World. So check out some of his photography on Instagram. And uh, Miller, what a great guy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I found it interesting that the first time he went to see Rush, he was underwhelmed. Yeah, that was interesting. Because what if he didn't go the next night? I don't know. It's just, the magic happens when it happens, Steve. He may never have worked for Rush. Yeah. If he didn't go that second night and, and sneak down to better seats, who knows where his life would have gone? <laughs> who knows? That, that is crazy. He might not be a Rush fan. I think about things like that all the time. You know, if I hadn't made this tiny little decision, how much different my life would be. You're a, uh, you adhere to the butterfly effect. Yeah. Type of thing. Yeah. Like if we hadn't made that decision to do this podcast, Jer, how different would our lives be? I don't know. <laughs> Probably not that much different. I'm of the mind. I hate to go on a tangent. I, I don't, I don't think that way. I'm of the mind that since it happened, there's no, who knows what would have happened? Do you know what I mean? Like it happened this way and I, we should just leave it at that. If we didn't do the podcast, uh, maybe one of us would have been hit by a car the next day. I don't know. <laughs> you know, who knows? Maybe we'll get hit by a car because we do the podcast. We should stop right now. You see, <laughs> what are you going to do? You can find us on Twitter at rush Fancast, Instagram. We are at the rush cast email Jerry with your theories on that. And just about anything else, our conversation with Miller at therushcast at gmail.com. The base intro and outro was Lex. He's great. And Jerry's quote is also great. Let's hear it. Yes. It's from Time in Motion. What album is Time in Motion on, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, right? When you're put on the spot. <laughs> it's on Test for Echo. Test for Echo, of course. Fill them up with precious cargo. Squeeze in all that you can find. Spontaneous elation and the long enduring kind. Awesome. Thanks, Jer. All right. See you, Steve. Take it easy. Thank you.